This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. There's a reason why we have a liberal tradition of things like free speech and pluralism and tolerance, right? These basic enlightenment principles are not outdated. They may be the only thing that will save us now. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, and I'm so glad to be with you for this episode. And thank you for joining us for Todd Rose Collective Illusions. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. For many of us who are sensitive to what many have referred to as a cold civil war in our country, you know, the divisions between people who have different beliefs, different political parties, different news ecosystems, seemingly different everything. It can feel scary and overwhelming. But the truth is that we're not nearly as divided as we think we're divided. That's what author and entrepreneur Dr. Todd Rose says, according to some of the most extensive research you'll find on this critical topic. Not only that, according to Dr. Rose's work, we end up making terribly flawed assumptions about what the people on our side of the aisle think, and that only perpetuates these problems that much more. So in this talk, we go pretty deep into the science of it all and how these collective illusions work, and more importantly, what we can do about it. This program is facilitated by Jessica Lowe Minor, principal and co-founder of Capacity Works, and our guest, Dr. Todd Rose, is the CEO of Populous, former professor and director of Laboratory for the Science of Individuality at Harvard, and the best-selling author of The End of Average, Dark Horse, and Collective Illusions, which we talk about in this program. I'm sure you'll appreciate this important and fun conversation. Jessica, take it away. Are we live? There we go. Okay. Well, it is so wonderful to see a full house tonight, and I'm very excited to serve as tonight's facilitator. And I have to say, actually, um, to our author tonight, Dr. Rose, um, that reading your book actually did change my life because being part of the Village Square Book Club um, has been something that um, has been deeply rewarding for me. It was the very first... Um, book that we read as a club, and now I think we're on to maybe our seventh or eighth um, book together, and it has been really meaningful to approach kind of these issues of politics, political division, why we are as Americans in this place where we are today, how we got there, um, to approach it thoughtfully with a group of people who I didn't know before we got together as a book club, um, and to tackle this together feels like we really can, as Americans, make a difference. So I want to thank you for kicking us off as a book club. Now, first of all, there are other books you're reading? <laughs> That's <laughs> read not your, what I was We told. read uh, yours first. Yeah. Yours was okay, the okay, first. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, then Jonathan Haidt, yeah. then these other dudes. Yeah, exactly. 
So, um, okay, well, I will go ahead and kick us off into the formal program, but um, if we were to make some assumptions about your professional trajectory, we'd probably be wrong. So by way of an introduction, tell us about your journey, one that ultimately made you a best-selling author, whoop, whoop, and landed you on the faculty of one of America's, one of America's, one of America's, America's most prestigious higher educational institution. Okay, you ready? Okay. I'm ready. That's good. Um, well, I was born with a trust fund, and, um, sorry, no offense to all the great trust fund kids. Um, the, uh, yeah, so actually, I'll give you the, the sort of longer version, because I think it's relevant to where we'll get to, is um, I was born in rural America, in like rural Utah, uh, working class family. And for whatever reason, even though I ended up being a professor and, and this other stuff we'll talk about, actually school didn't work very well. And I will say, I have to be very specific how bad it went, um, which is by uh, high school, I like to say um, I dropped out. They actually kicked me out, but it feels better. We had mutually agreed uh, it wasn't working. Um, but I had a 0 0.9 GPA. Which is pretty awesome. That's, you have to work really hard yeah. to like avoid social promotion, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, about the same time, my girlfriend found out she was pregnant, started a family. Uh, great start to life. Uh, was on, um, had two kids by the time we were 21. Wow. Um, ended up on welfare, did like 10 different minimum wage jobs. Uh, the last job I did before I was like, something has to change, was I had ended up getting trained as a, a nurse assistant, because I can make a little bit, and because it paid a dollar more an hour, I, vo I volunteered to be the person that drove around and gave enemas for a living. It, I mean, look, it's, good. it's honest work. Somebody has to do it, I'm, I'm like, really. Now, by the way, uh, do you remember Mike Rowe? Dirty Jobs? So, I, I just in his podcast, I love Mike Rowe. He's usually, if I ever tell that story, it's like a throwaway line just to be like, and then, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's, pause, let's stop here for a minute. We, if you listen to it, we, he goes on for about 10 minutes of the finer details of exactly how that works. So he's- We'll spare you that tonight. Yeah, that, that's, that's your evening uh, bedtime stuff. So the, you know, I realized like something had to change. I didn't really know what the answer was, but you know, it's one thing when you're ruining your own life, it's a whole different one when you're ruining two little kids' lives too. Um, and I was really fortunate, uh, my, my father was the first high school graduate in our family, and he was also the first college graduate. So he was a mechanic by training, came home one night when I was in uh, middle school and said, hey, I think there's something different for me. Uh, went to college, became a mechanical engineer, just retired, I'm just proud of him, so I have to tell you, he um, has more patents for airbags than any other person in the world. Um, he invented side curtain airbags, I'm just super proud of him, but I had, that, I had that role model of like, if you're gonna do something different. So I got a GED, I went um, to our local school, Weber State University, Dame Lillard, you know, um, and we had just enough money that my in-laws and my parents cobbled together. They said, we can get you through one year. You're gonna to have to figure out how to make it work or else you gotta go back to whatever you were doing. Um, 
And I say that, so I get I, at Weber State, and then I'll, I promise this has an ending, or, or 90 minutes will end, and um, we'll be done. Because um, this will lead to the stuff I care the most about. So trying to figure out how to make it work, I knew that the, the sort of one-size-fits-all standardized way of learning didn't work for me. And so I was trying to figure something out, and I realized there a lot about the importance of individuality and good fit, which I wrote a lot about in the end of average. But I want to share just probably the most important moment um, of my life to that point, because I think it's relevant to how we think about uh, potential. So I, I, I was sitting in um, a history class in a big auditorium, which wasn't good learning for me. I knew enough, but I couldn't get out of it. And I was complaining to my buddy Steve as, as the class ends, like, this is terrible. And he says, well, it's nothing compared to what I've got myself into in the honors program. And I really thought the honors program was just more work. So I was like, why would anybody do that? He said, no, 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 you don't get it. In the honors program, there are no lectures. They're just small groups of people. So you can't, you have to show up. And he's like, there are no tests. You just write some stuff. He's like, I don't even think there are right answers. We just debate all the time. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you, that's a thing? So I got so excited and impulsive. I literally grabbed everything I had, go up to the, the, the honors program at Weber State, it was the top of the hill, second floor of the library. I was like, I gotta be in this honors program. I get up there and I go right into the office and there's the, the secretary, Marilyn Diamond, who's my favorite person in the world. Um, I said, I, I, wanna, I wanna be in the honors program. She says, great, great, great. Let me get you in to see the director. So she lets me right in, I go sit down, and I said, I want to be in the honors program. He said, this is great, we're really proud of this. Weber State was an open enrollment school, so it was like, you know, just a couple questions. Uh, what was your high school GPA? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, this is no kidding. I said, 0.9. And his response was, what 0.9? <laughs> like, I, like I, I'd left off some, you know, really important part, and it just, I told him it's 0 0.9, and it just, he was nice about it, but he said, you can't be in the honors program. <laughs> like, I heard, we have standards, he didn't actually say it, but the, I was so embarrassed, like, oh, okay, I'm so sorry, I grab my stuff, and I start heading out of the, out of his office. As I walk past, right outside Marilyn Diamond's desk, is just right outside the door, and as I raced out to just hide, she grabbed my arm. And she said, listen, I overheard the conversation. If you want this, don't take no for an answer. Didn't realize that was possible. Um, so she tells me to sit down on the, on the couch. And she said, don't leave until he lets you in. So I sat for what felt like the entire day. Um, he comes and goes. It was only a few hours. Anyway, he finally pulls me back. And he said, like, why do you want to be in the honors program? Like, on paper, it makes no sense. And I was telling him about what I'd learned about myself and why I thought it was a good fit. And he decides to let me in on a provisional basis. Take one class, if you do well, you can take another. Okay. Turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a perfect fit. I ended up graduating as the honor student of the year um, when I graduated with a 397 GPA on my way to Harvard mm -hmm. for my doctorate. And I, yeah, right? I, I, no standing ovation? Like I, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I, 
I say this because a couple of things. It taught me a little bit about what real potential looked like and about the importance of finding good fit for who you are. But the last thing I'll say, and then I promise we'll move on. I, I went back to Weber State right before the pandemic to get an award and Marilyn was retiring. And I thought, what a great opportunity to tell some version of this story with her in the audience. So I tell it, they get really excited, may or may not have been a static ovation. The, um, who knows? The, um, so they say, wait, Marilyn, come up, come up. And she, she's kind of shy, she comes up to the stage, she gives me a hug, she adjusts the microphone. And she said, well, thank you for the kind words, Todd. I don't remember that happening. <laughs> so, I thought she would call me a liar. Uh, it turns out she just did that for everybody. Everybody had a Marilyn Diamond story. And so we'll talk a lot about, I'm super proud of the things I've accomplished and the things we continue to accomplish at Populous and I'm, I'm proud of that opportunity. But you never quite forget that it's never just your own effort. I've worked really hard but people like Marilyn Diamond, and the reason I say this is simply that um, it was life-changing to me, and it was so small to her, she didn't remember it. And I think we often think the kind of impact we have in people's lives must have to require such massive investment, and it's just not true. So as we think about this kind of community engagement and the things we do, anyway, that's the answer to the first question. Okay. What else you got? Um, okay. Then there was Harvard, and then we, I, we left Harvard, and la, here we are. La. All right. What is a collective illusion? <laughs> and how did you become interested in that topic? So, <clears throat> collective illusions, for those of you, which, by the way, I, thank you for coming. You read the book and still came, so this is really good. Uh, <laughs> it's not how it usually goes. I appreciate it. Um, Collective illusions are really just social phenomena where most people in a group end up going along with something they don't privately agree with because they incorrectly think that most people in the group agree with it. So as a result, entire groups end up doing something that almost nobody wants to do. We've known about that for quite a while. You think about the emperor's new clothes, like, so clearly this is not new. It's absolutely out of control now. We'll talk about that as we go on, I'm sure. But how we came to this is, you know, uh, my co-founder, Dr. Parisa Rohani, and I um, had spun out a lab from Harvard and uh, wanted to do real work, <laughs> um, left the academy um, for us, uh, and got into the, into the world, and everything we care about depending on, depended on us understanding what Americans really thought which I thought, okay, well, so just do polling. So we're building it up, and then the 2016 election hits. We're like, hmm, maybe, maybe we don't really know what people think. Um, and so we ended up diving into all these methodologies that we didn't invent um, that would help us get around social pressure and, and things like that. But one of the things that was just lucky that we, we had asked is we tossed in a, a, a question your, your view, and then we said, what do you think most people would say? And we just started asking that, and we kept seeing this weird, like, wow, like, on about almost everything, we'd get, here's what people think, and then they were almost spectacularly wrong about each other. So we were like, wait, this, 
we knew this existed, we just didn't realize it was a big problem. So we've been, um, we have arguably more private opinion data on the American public than any organization. Um, and I'm telling you right now, name anything that matters in America right now, and there's a 50-50 chance you're wrong about what most Americans really think. This is a big problem, and we'll, we'll talk. It's a problem with a solution, but that solution's different than what most people think it is. Well, so what are some current phenomena, and you can use your research or just observations, but what do you think are some current phenomena that you would characterize as a, as a collective I, I wish it was hard to pick something. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we study, uh, we have data on people's views of success, the American dream, uh, what they want for the country. Like, what should America be? Um, we have a lot of private opinion data on what people want out of education, criminal justice, health care, um, you name it. And <laughs> whatever you want to choose, this is, this is where we're at. So let's take the uh, finer point on the success one. We use methodologies that force trade-offs that you can't game. Um, it's called, well, that method is called conjoint. It's really great. Um, and we can get trade-off priorities you have for the life you want to live. When we did this, in the, what, when I wrote about in the book, people thought that everybody else wanted to be famous. It was the number one trade-off. And it was not even close, right? Turns out that's literally dead last in private. Dead last. So I use this example because here's the problem with collective illusions. They're not, it's fun, oh, we're just wrong. Well, no, they've become self-fulfilling prophecies. If you believe this is what everybody thinks, right, and we all think we all think this, especially over time, and th this is why I chose this example, because history shows us that this generation's collective illusions tend to become next generation's private opinion. Because our kids don't know we're all lying, right? They, they believe we're honest people, right? The joke's on them, but the, um, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. My colleagues at UCLA have been studying the effects of media and culture on middle school kids for about a decade or so. Say, what kind of values are they internalizing? Every year up until recently, the dominant values were character related. I wanna be, be a good friend. I want to a... Recently it flipped to I want to be famous and it hasn't gone back. I remember they interviewed one kid and he said, I want to have a million followers. And they said, okay, for what? And he said, doesn't matter. <laughs> Just want to have a million followers. I like to believe he understood monetization and he was like, I can turn that into something else. I just think he's, this is what it means to be successful. It's one thing when these illusions lead our young children to adopt a view of life that we all know is a dead end. But now think about that on a larger scale when it's about the fundamentals of American democracy, right? How we want to treat each other, whether we trust one another, that kind of stuff. You can kind of start to see the problem. For sure. So why are we reading each other so badly? Like what's <laughs> happening? So in a formal life, I w I'm trained in neuroscience. Um, and it, it, on the one hand, you could say they're just bad actors. And we'll talk about there are some bad actors that are amplifying this. but. Understanding how illusions form are really critical to understanding sort of what we do about it. Because as I say it right now, if I told you, Americans actually have a shocking amount in common. Like it, it, it's unreal how much commonality there is. You wanna believe that, and you're like, eh, it doesn't feel like that, right? 
doesn't feel like that. Are we just like wishful thinking? And this is what collective illusions, their biggest problem is, it's just about how your brain works. And here's what I mean. Every one of us, despite what, what we'd like to think, we are wired to, for, with a conformity bias. Like human beings would prefer to be with their groups, not against them. Nothing wrong with that. That's how you get culture. There's strength in numbers. It is a fundamental survival thing. But, and, and by the way, I, I have to do this, Rev, sorry. I'm gonna, I said this in the book, but I still have to tell you, for those of you who don't know, because it drives me crazy that anyone got paid to do this. When I say we have a conformity bias, my buddy in the Netherlands decides to test how far that conformity bias goes. And I'm like, I still can't believe it. He's like, I'm gonna see if it applies to who you think is good looking. Like, you, you got paid to do this. Like, because you have a, an fMRI scanner, you're a scientist. If I do this game of hot or not in the street, you're a creepy person. <laughs> it's like, cool, <laughs> put a lab coat on, they let you do a lot. But, um, so that, that, the way this worked was, all he did was, because uh, this is about as subjective as it gets, if you think someone's attractive, puts them in a scanner, shows them pictures of people's faces, as a scale of one to five, how hot do you think they are, right? You're sitting in there, you're looking at face, you're like, that's a five, that's a two. But the trick was, is every time you answered it, there's a number that shows up that you're told represents how most people rated that face of all the people who had done the study before. Turns out it was all, all a lie. It was made so that about a big chunk of the time, what he told you the group believed was exactly what you rated. And big chunk of the time, it was completely different. And then we just watch what happens to your brain. Turns out when you're told that your subjective view of good looking aligns with a group you've never met and probably don't actually care about, it triggers a dopamine reward response in your brain. The same reward response that hard drugs activate. So when I say we, <laughs> we have a bias to conform, like when you are told that your attractiveness score deviated significantly from the group, it triggered what's called an error signal, a cascading electrical signal that is meant to short circuit attention, working memory, everything to say something is wrong, pay attention, okay? The last part about this study, he says, as soon as you get done taking it, he goes, oh shoot, I'm sorry. Uh, it didn't register the, the results. Can you just do that again real quick? How'd you do it again? And then we look, and so what happens is, when you're told you were wrong with the group, people shift their scores without even realizing it to be closer to what they thought the group said was attractive. So this is what I mean when we say, we really, really have a bias to conformity, and it, it's bad enough it can lead to groupthink, but collective illusions are a whole different problem. Because for conformity to work, you actually have to know what the group thinks, else what would you be conforming to? This is where it gets a little crazy. You would think, given how important it is to know group consensus, your brain would have all kinds of sophisticated mechanisms for estimating what consensus is. It doesn't. It's got this ridiculous shortcut. No kidding. Your brain assumes the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. Even when you intellectually know it's not true, this is how your brain is computing majority opinion. It must have worked at some point, right? 
This is how your brain does it. But think about this, and we'll hit this, I'm sure, because in an age of social media, on, I guess it's not Twitter anymore, we can talk about branding on another night, uh, X, um, 80% of all content is created by 10% of the users. And it turns out we know that those 10% aren't remotely representative of the American public, not even close. They tend to be extreme on almost every social issue. So you sort of can see the problem. If 10% of Americans hold an opinion, but you think it's 80%, then your brain's gonna say, this is what the majority of people think. And unless you are willing to go against your group, you're gonna say nothing, or you're gonna say what you think you're supposed to say. And if enough of us start to self-silence, then the only voices anybody hears from are the fringes. And the result will be a collective illusion. And I'll just end that part with this. We have data, but so do a lot of other people, consistently showing in America today, nearly two-thirds of us admit to self-silencing. How in the world does a democracy work when most people don't think they can be honest with most people? So this is where we're at. No wonder we're spectacularly wrong about each other. So then being where we are now, and in this context of cancel culture, trolling, doxing, you know, any number of potential HR concerns, retaliation, right? How do we be honest about what we're thinking when we are also, many of us, fearful about being perceived in the wrong way or mm. being perceived in the way we want to be perceived, but having that have negative consequences for us personally or for our families? Well, I think, look, and I tried to, to write this in the book because if I just said, well, Suck it up. <laughs> well, yeah, duh, right? Like, thank you for the answer, Dr. Rose. Um, it can be scary because look, some of that is real. Some of that is people do lose their jobs, right? Some of that people really do get ostracized from the group to the point where it's just not worth picking that fight. So in the book, I did try to show like, if you stop and think about, if you just assume, and I think this is a good rule of thumb right now, in anything that matters, it's a coin toss. I'm about to conform to something that I am convinced everybody thinks you are probably wrong. And if you thought, if you thought for two seconds that the group actually agreed with you, but we were all just sort of cowering in silence, I don't know that, I, I th most people when they realize that, they're like, hold on, rather than just, just quickly going to saying nothing, maybe I can do a little bit here. And so in the, in the book, I tried to lay out a few things like, when everyone seems to be following along like a standing ovation, although that one was really worthy of it, right? Um, <laughs> they do call it the copycat trap, where you're just like, I, I, I don't know, this many people can't be wrong. It's like, yeah, they can, <laughs> they really can, right? Simple things like asking why to someone. Why are, why, why are we doing this? And you'll be shocked. If people can give you an answer to the why, it is their actual view. It, this, is, this happens all the time with like, why is, ever, why is that line at that restaurant? Is, this must be really great. Like, hey, so wh why do you like it? Oh no, everybody loves it. 
wait, that's not what I asked, right? <laughs> like, why do you like it? Um, that's a quick way to know that like, oh, wait a minute, we're all just copying each other. And it was like one person made a decision. Um, in the book, I laid out something more important than on this copycat thing, more important than restaurants, but the same phenomenon when it's in, in sequence was this kidney transplant list, which just blew my mind. The way it works historically is right, like way more people need kidneys than ever get them. So they go on a list, it's literally just ordered, right? There's a few, few parameters that move people around. And then a kidney becomes available and it's only uh, viable for about 48 hours, give or take. So obviously there's like a mad dash to get down that list and find someone who'll take it, get it to them, okay. For a really long time, there was just a list. I knew I was, say, number five on the list. If I get a call that says there's a kidney available, I get a little bit of information about the kidney, my doctor does too. I also know that four other people passed on it. Why did they pass on it? If I'm number five, I think I might live to have another shot at this. And if I'm not sure if it's perfect fit, I'll pass on it. Turns out, as it starts to tumble, wait a minute, I'm 10 and nine people passed on this thing that looks like it's good. What do they know that I don't know? Turned out we were discarding healthy kidneys at a rate that is shocking. And we knew it because when there were two uh, kidneys healthy, they would, they would track them. Like one would get grabbed early, the same quality kidney would just keep falling. And the more people that said no, the more likely it is they say no after that. Um, turned out the solve was so simple. Instead of just saying, I pass, you have to now say why you pass. Turns out people would be like, I'm literally not in town. I couldn't get there. That's a big difference than I think this is a crummy kidney, right? Simply being able to ask and answer the question of why solved the copycat problem. Other thing I'll say, and this is stuff we can all do, especially in the highly charged political stuff, which, ugh, um, it turns out when you're afraid that the group might, groups really do ostracize people, by the way. This is not, <laughs> like, groups do not like it when you go against them, okay? So you're not wrong to be a little nervous. But it turns out if you just inject uncertainty into the group, instead of saying, I disagree, if you, if you can't get yourself there, just saying I haven't made up my mind. Groups love that, turns out. <laughs> they love to convince you. You know what, I know I hear you. I'm not so sure, I'm still debating it. And what you'll see is if this really is the group's opinion, truly, they will try to persuade you. Then you can make a decision for yourself if you wanna go along with it. But these are ways that we can start to suss out. But look, ultimately, here's the thing. Unless we come to a recognition that in a world of social media and the, our brains, the brains we got, you can no longer trust your brain to accurately read your group ever again. You can't. Even without any manipulation, the amplifying effects of social media will always give an advantage to fringe views. It's just gonna be that way. That's okay. We don't have to, right? The, the, the long game, and this will be, seems so obvious and it's obviously why you're all here, there's a reason why we have a liberal tradition of things like free speech and pluralism and tolerance, right? These basic enlightenment principles 
are not outdated. They may be the only thing that will save us now. And what's the saddest thing of all, the thing that scares me the most, is one of the biggest collective illusions we've ever found is in the commitment to free speech and pluralism, where it's like most people are like, no, 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 I definitely still care about that. I mean, I don't think most people care about it, right? You're like, are you kidding me? We're going to lose this not because we no longer care, but because we think we don't care? So I wrote the book because it's like only 3% of people had ever even heard of a collective illusion. And so I thought as a starting point, at least recognizing that this is a phenomenon that is real might be a, a starting point to trying to do something about it. All right. Well, in the vein of um, saying what we honestly think, I want to open it up to our audience here and allow them to um, raise their hand if they have a question um, for Dr. Rose. I have a few more that I'm going to get mm. through, but we definitely want to um, start to engage and make sure that this is more of a dialogue. So Bill Maddox is in the back. Liz Joyner is also walking around with a microphone. And I see and actually Dominic up here with a question. We will pick people based on attractiveness. Oh. So. <laughs> Dominic's definitely a 10 up here Absolutely. with his hands up. Well done. <laughs> uh, I've often believed that a thousand Frenchmen could be wrong. That's been part of our success, OK? Uh, not always, but if you're right, you keep your open mind. You always ask why, why, why. But here's the question. It's a little bit different about mere perceptions. How do we balance a sense of free speech and respecting that and tolerance for different views when sometimes, particularly now with this Israeli, you know, Gaza conflict and Hamas conflict, how do we deal with that in a respectful, humane, just, moral way when the other guys, it's not just, it's not moral. It's, you know, doing things that we as a people find barbaric and reprehensible. How do we allow that conversation? We wouldn't allow people to say, kill Italians, kill black people, kill. How can we say kill Jews and say that's okay? So how do we balance those two views out in, in your mindset? So this one's a hard one for me. It, I. I I mean, just cards on the table, it's just pure evil, right? And I'm sorry, I, I don't mean that as political. I, I, I can't believe that we're in a place where we actually aren't just saying, whatever else you think about this, the intentional killing of children and people, like, is just evil. Like, like part of the problem is, we can have a deep commitment to enlightenment principles and still have morals. Like, we can still say, we can still call something what it is. There's still room for more nuanced conversations of the finer points of the broader challenges in that region. But we've gotten to a place, and I'll tell you why, and not to link it back to the book, but one of the things that really worries me, and I believe partly why it, this is happening right now and the way we talk about it, is we're so unbelievably tribal now. And in, in the book, I talked about the, this other trap called the identity trap. We crave belonging. We do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that belonging can become weaponized in a hurry. Our, our politics does it. Um, and when, when we are isolated into a group, that group has cult-like power over you. 
In fact, I literally wrote about cults in the book about this, this, where we can't even challenge languages, something as truly evil as that, because this is what our group thinks. It, so in the, in the book I did lay out, look, we have to get around this identity trap, and part of that is you cannot belong to just one group. This is literally like straightforward. Like if you have three groups you belong to, and by the way, no kidding, being a part of this group counts as that. My buddy Bob Putnam talked to you about even just bowling groups. It doesn't have to be my political party, and then I need something that big. Literally, other groups. It turns out, if you have even, an, an, if usually the magic number is at least three. If you can even imagine yourself in the other identity, then the, the conformity push to say something that you don't believe doesn't have that same sting that we talked about, that same error signal. So it's not for nothing if I was a conspiracy theorist, that it's, it's in the best interest of politicians and other people to eliminate the entire civil society, that middle layer between us and our politics, and make it, it's you, and you can be this or you can be that. But when that happens, we will say and do things that are truly atrocious. Um, and I believe that's part of it. And I know that's not quite answering the full question, but I don't know, I don't think there is a technology answer there, right? And I, I, I don't know that historically the censorship answer has ever truly solved the problem. So I would say this broader commitment to what we might think of as identity complexity along with a doubling down on these fundamental values, not just a free speech so I can say whatever I want, but a, a commitment to basic dignity and respect listening. I, I don't know any other way out of it, but like I said, this is the hard, one of the hardest things for me right now too. I see another question over here. This is a, 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 oh, there we go. Oh, a question here from one of our, <laughs> a, another one of our book club members. Thank you. Um, given the amount of data that you said you're collecting, which is, you said, huge, and you've got a lot of it, and the current temperature on AI and how fast it's going to change, are you looking at how you're going to take your data and perhaps have AI that fights other AI or something like that? I mean, it's got to be something you all are thinking about. I'd be interested in the answer. Yeah. Listen, yeah, we've been doing a lot of work in AI as well and its effects on this. Social media is gonna feel like child's play. I mean, absolute child's play because you know what, the best that can happen there in terms of the worst is China, Russia, they, they're not, it's not disinformation. It, it is the biggest mis, misnomer. They are using bots to find fringe American views and amplify them to create the illusion that we're talking about, right? That is gonna seem so quaint when we can generate, and we can, I can make you say anything I want you to say. And the evidence so far is even family members can't tell the difference. You're talking about like deep fakes? Uh -huh. like, okay. <laughs> and, and, and it is just getting like, the other problem is, and we're dealing with this in education, and there's some really cool examples I have to say that, that we've got to deal with is, the take, not thinking that AI is like, well, you can't use it, 
You can't use Chad GTP, right? That is the exact wrong answer in education. These kids better understand this thing better than anybody because it is here to stay. Uh, it's not just a tool for cheating, right? What we've noticed is when kids start to see AI as the oracle, they are in really big trouble, obviously, because it is not right all the time. But they get used to it and they don't think for themselves. One of the coolest things that I've ever seen in combating this, and we've been measuring some of the effects on whether these kids are better at, at maintaining uh, their own of opinion, is the incentivizing in this one school um, in Austin that uses AI. Cleverest thing I've ever seen is they literally reward detecting when the AI is wrong. Literally give them money. There's a leaderboard, the kids are like, and you're kind of embarrassed, you've never found a mistake. Like, and so they're looking and they, they rank them, it's like, if you find a, literally a factual mistake, oh man, you, you are buying lunch for everybody for a while, these kids. And it just incentivizes them to get used to the idea. This. The other thing I'll say is I'm on the uh, board of, uh, with Sal Khan, um, and we've got some really cool stuff coming to, to, to blow the doors off of that nationwide. Conmigo, which is the AI tool that was invented for this, is actually built to have kids be challenged. So you give it an opinion, it'll interrogate why you think that. Instead of just telling you something back, it's getting you to think for yourself. So there's some good tools there, but my goodness, if, if we don't like think about this, get ahead of it, at the same time we're trying to, the long game is still as simple as this sounds, Nothing beats culture, nothing. Strong norms, like doubling down on these things, increasing our commitment to tolerance, pluralism, free speech. We won't lose then, we won't. Um, so we'll do the technology, we'll deal with that, we'll educate our kids, but we have a, a, an obligation as Americans, if we care about this experiment of ours, to not let it go quietly into the night. And, and, and not for nothing, I think we've got, a, we've got a birthday party coming up in a few years. We've got, to, we've got to focus our attention on what it means to be Americans. And to me, it's this, it's these conversations, it's these values, not fighting against each other. Anyway, you know. <laughs> Hi, thank you for being here. Um, for us to, what, what do you suggest I guess other than being in this room, and obviously we're a group that's here, like you said, because we're wanting to know and be open to other points of view and people and see that, but being able to then, like, ed uh, I don't want to use that the word educate, but, but even as a parent in bringing that to other generations and children to get them to cease because we can see the extremes in that. If that's just opinion, that's also how news sources are being run and information's being disseminated in all of these other places. So, you know, what, what would you, I guess, suggest, or are you seeing anything in your research other than sitting here and talking and then recommending your, the book? And well, this, the I guess everybody read the book. But, but that glimpse of hope, though, so, you know, the issue that Dominic's talking about is right now in front of a specific, and if our extreme news sources we know are going to just be an 8% maybe point of view, we know we're only seeing, like, extreme sides of everything. 
I, I don't think there's an educate, like, 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 we like to think we like to hear from different people, and some of us do. It's actually really hard. It's hard. You, you have to learn to actually care about that. It's uncomfortable to have your ideas challenged. I, I am deeply skeptical that there is a technology solution because I will get the information I want to hear. I, I, I just, you know, um, I, we can fight some of that. I do think that, um, although Elon hasn't done it yet, but he had promised to, the research is pretty crystal clear. If you eliminate social bots from social media, you, you deal with a lot of this problem. Not all of it, but it is shocking how much of it is generated by these bots, and you can get rid of it. Um, you can get rid of it. So, well, I, and this is gonna sound like I'm a Luddite, I actually do like technology. If I had little kids, there's no way in hell I would let them on social media. <laughs> I, and maybe because I just don't know the answer, but it's like, it is, and, and unfortunately, we happen to be friends with some of the people that created these things. And to listen to them talk about being in the room as they realize what really does hook people, and it's not being nice, it's outrage. For our young kids, it's the like button. In fact, you remove the like button and you remove the addictive qualities of social media. So why would they remove the like button? So there's some aspects where we can think about whether we want to talk, whether that's okay. Um, I still come back to, and this isn't gonna be a terribly satisfying answer, and I, I, I don't have, I mean, we are grappling with the effects of transformational technologies. And every time that's ever happened in human history, we were always like, yay, and then, oh, shoot, right? <laughs> like, we're so excited about the upside, and then you get smacked up beside the head by, like, unbelievable downside. Every single time it is required that we learn some new skill or some new mindset to mitigate the downside and make the upside worth it. Let me give you a historical example so I'm just avoiding your question. Um, <laughs> but it'll sound like a, you know, it's an old professor trick. Um, something all the way back to the jump from oral tradition to written tradition. That's really far back, right? It seemed obvious if we started writing things down, that would be better for knowledge. Of course, if you believe so Plato Socrates was like, this is gonna be terrible, we're gonna lose memory, which is by reciting Homer, yeah, you're right, we don't do that anymore. But it seemed like it would be worth it if you could get it written down. And it was, sort of. But to unlock the upside, you needed to acquire this highly artificial skill called literacy. You can't teach yourself. That has to be taught. And elites at the time recognized that and they hoarded it, arguably till the Reformation took an act of God to democratize that skill. And up until then, it, that trade-off was not worth it because under oral tradition, we all could participate. When I think about this shift now, and I think about we flood and say social media, look, like I, I happen to know Mark Zuckerberg, I think he genuinely, I know he genuinely means well, he has a massive blind spot. He believes this is democratizing opinion, giving everyone a voice, and he just can't see 
that the very thing he's creating, if we're not careful, may undo the thing he cares the most about. So thinking together about what is that skill, right? Is it teaching kids to actively look for problems? Is, I still think coming back to culture being important, norms matter. Because if, if, when I think, what does it mean to belong? If it means letting you have an opinion and maybe not jumping, like you can actually make the norms of a group being authentic, being congruent is what it means to be part of my group. If we think about the norms we fashion, then people who want to stand for their own opinions will do that. And people who just want to belong will know, well, just going along, does, that's the last thing I'm going to do. So there's things we can get at, but I don't even think we're looking at the problem right. Like, like anyway, let's see that. I chewed up a lot of time, not a good answer. I'll come back, we'll have a better conversation. Well, okay. well, you did just raise the concept of congruence, which you do discuss a lot in the book, and so I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that a little bit more specifically. Yeah, I, I, like, I grapple a lot with this. Like, as a neuroscientist, here, here's the thing I'll tell you. We are hardwired, we hate it when we're inauthentic. We don't want to lie to each other. People actually get back to this reward response. You get a reward response for, for being, this is who I am. It, by the way, back to the social media, it's why most posts are just like, look at my cats. You know, this is me. <laughs> like, we like this and we like to be understood. This is, I think, one of the biggest mistakes people make when they think about talking across differences is they think we have to come to common ground. We do not. In fact, just feeling like you understood me. You may not agree with me, but you know where I'm coming from and you treat me with respect gets you about 80% of the way there. So, you know, I think about every model that I know of about a good life, whether we call it flourishing, self-actualization, whatever, ultimately comes down to I need to be authentic right? There is no model of a good life that is you being phony. Not that I can, I don't remember any <laughs> Greek philosophers saying phoniness is the path to happiness. <laughs> but for it to work as how we come, how do we live well together? It only works if we're also honest with each other. Not just because I can be authentic and be a complete a-hole, right? <laughs> like treating each other with respect. And so congruence was this interesting concept for me of not just being authentic. I'm going to be true to myself. No, but I also need to be true to you. I owe you that. You know, when I think about the charge of not bearing false witness, not to us, we don't think it's just about God. But I don't think it is. I think it's, you can't lie to each other. But when I hide my honest view because I'm afraid of what you might think of me, how is that not false witness? And so I do believe faith communities have a really, I know that's not all this, have an important role to play in calling us back to an obligation to congruence, both for our own sake of living a good life and for the maintenance and sustainability of a fabric of a free society that requires a little bit of goodwill and grace. Absolutely. Am I seeing some more questions in the audience? I see yeah, Bill. Here's one. Hi. Um, as someone who has a tendency to speak out of turn 
and two has a tendency to uh, be contrarian when he does so. I really appreciate, I'm grateful that you've pointed out that I'm probably the last bastion of civilization as we know it. Uh, but, but that aside, um, I'm gonna lob you a softball here. Um, you mentioned in the book a, a few times, but I want, I'd like to hear from you. What would you recommend from a practical standpoint for parents to do, um, parents of children, parents of teenagers, parents of even early adults? What can we do to help our, our kids become less likely to participate in the collective yeah. illusion? What can we do? Man, I love that you think parenting advice is the softball that you're giving me. <laughs> How do I raise my kids? Well, um, no, but look, here's, here's what's re really important, and this is going to be obvious, but it's still worth saying. There is no power greater in terms of influencing the minds of children than the home. It's their first norms. It is their first people that they emulate. If you only do one thing, model this behavior for your kids. Model it. Talk about it with them. Make it part of the routine. What it means to be part of your household is to be this way. Well, look, will they have peer pressure? Yes, they will, all that kind of stuff. But in the same way, we've always known that parents are the first teachers of their kids. When we think about it from a moral standpoint, we understand you cannot pass that on to somebody else. When it comes to how they are gonna show up in a democracy that is being torn apart by misinformation and collective illusions that depends fundamentally on an integrity, on us willingness to be congruent, I believe we have to elevate that to the same moral standard. And like, to me, model it, nothing else matters if you don't model it. Uh, talk about it, have the time together. Um, and I think, I, I actually think that is, it is a decent softball question. Um, thank you. <laughs> well, so then speaking of models for congruence, you talk a lot about Václav Havel in your work. Um, so the Czech playwright and statesman. Um, why did you choose to feature him so prominently in Collective Illusions? Uh, because I'm a reformed academic and, no. Um, <laughs> not reformed, it seems like. Not reformed, not <laughs> There's still a little bit, yeah. For the next three hours, we're gonna talk about Václav Havel and the, um, no, this is actually like, I think the most important story, if you want to understand what is possible, because look, here's the thing, and, and we were debating this a little bit before, I, I do think social media makes some of this really hard, right, and we'll have to, we, so I, but social change when there is private disagreement is extremely difficult. I would have to convince you to change your mind. You look at the, the rate of change in America for interracial marriage, it was unbelievably slow. Linear process, because people privately had a problem with it. it. Took a really long time. You look at something like marriage equality, whatever side of that you're on, that was an exponential curve because people, there was a majority privately that were already okay with it. They just didn't think they could say so. But the, the Velvet Revolution, the, when we think about where we're at in America today, it feels like the wheels are falling off, right? It does, it just feels like, what happened? <laughs> like, this is, this is a, we knew we had problems, but it just feels like, what is going on? Um, <clears throat> for those of you who don't remember, I'm just gonna give you the, the quick spin of this. The Velvet Revolution, Czechoslovakia, 1989, 
The only example we have of overthrowing an authoritarian communist regime without a single shot being fired, without anybody losing their life. And around the same time, you had the brutal suppression of the Hungarian attempt at that exact same thing. And people to this day, like scholars will say, this is an anomaly, and no one was like, what? how? How could they do that with the same Soviet satellite state, the same things? And it was really cool when you realize what the underlying answer there was. And the guy that led this is Václav Havel. Not a military person, not a politician, a poet and a playwright. So Havel writes this, this play, the satire of communism called The Garden Party. It's so subtle that even the censors don't know they're being made fun of. <laughs> and he puts it out. And it becomes a runaway hit, like literally like the Hamilton of its time. Sold out all the time. And he sat there every night and watched not the play, but the crowd. And he said, they laughed at all the right parts. They laughed at things that you wouldn't find funny if you actually believed in communism. So he realizes the problem is not that the Czech people believe in communism, but they think that they do. And he writes this manifesto, which is free to download. I would highly recommend it. It's unreal, called The Power of the Powerless. About 80 pages, change your life. It'll sound like he's writing to us today where he, he, he lays out that he realizes what the problem is. There's a great opening story about the green grocer. It's worth reading. He's like, everybody puts the signs up because they have to. But the signs being up saying they all support him, we all look and go, I don't, but you do. Why would you put the sign up? Like, for the same reason you are. But we don't realize it. And he says, well, look, if the problem is the illusion that we've learned to live in a lie. We've got comfortable living in a lie. Then no amount of military power, no amount of politics could ever get us out of that. The only way forward was learning to live in truth. And, that, and so he decides community by community, bottom up, to create these small works programs that allowed people outlets to be more congruent. To, to express who they really were, not politically. I'm talking like literary things, small stuff, that low stakes. He told the story of his neighbor who he sees has a little garden plot in her little terrace. And he says, you like gardening? And she said, no, I don't. Said, I'm looking at it right. No, that's not mine. It's like, cause she just, cause for all you know, next week, this could be a Western plot. And like, now you're getting dragged off. So he says, look, we've got to get people back to the practice of living in truth. He was roundly mocked. I mean, like, it's funny now we celebrate him. It was like, this is ridiculous. And yet, it's building, it's building, and it changes so fast that nobody sees the Velvet Revolution coming. The CIA didn't see it. The Kremlin didn't see it. Even Václav Havel didn't see it. Just a little while before the student protest that unleashed 12 days that then transformed the whole country, Havel's interviewed in an international magazine, and he's like, listen, 
the revolution's important, I'm in it, I'm in it, but this takes time. Um, I probably won't be alive to see the end. Three months later, he's the first democratically elected president of a free Czechoslovakia. By the way, never formed a political party even when he was president. Just <laughs> But I say this because if a poet can overthrow communism, I think we'll be okay. I think we could do something together here, right? Our problems aren't nothing. They're not small. But so many of them suffer from the same underlying problem that Václav did. It is not that we no longer share common values as Americans. That's not the problem. The problem is we believe we don't. The problem's an illusion. If we do nothing, it will become self-fulfilling. If we realize the root of the problem and realize that the way forward is not through persuasion, it is through revelation, it is through revealing to you who I really am, you'll be shocked at what we can accomplish as Americans. I mean, I truly believe that, and we are, I am, we have committed our lives to that because I think our best days are ahead, but I think this, this isn't, look, collective illusions are not the answer to everything, obviously, but I, I cannot see a way forward for us that doesn't start with understanding this problem. Right. Over here. Uh, th thank you for... You, I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher. You just preached the best sermon I've ever heard. That's great. Um, That's a huge compliment. Seriously, right. thank you. <laughs> While I understand the importance of teaching children to... Uh, independence of thought, is it also the case that, for instance, in science classrooms, children might say, well, yeah, well, you say that evolution is a fact of reality, but that's not my opinion. And in my opinion, the world came to be in a different way. Uh, same thing could be said about issues about climate change. So when you speak of truth, is there not also uh, an element of that that involves science and experiment and, and uh, the scientific method? And are we not trapped somewhat in this notion that, well, that's your opinion, mm -hmm. But my opinion is just as good, and it's contrary to yours. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a great question. So, look, there's some things that are just opinion, so, and, that, and that'll be, right, and, and we, can, we can deal with that. <clears throat> this, this ab One of the things that annoys me to no end as a scientist is the way we teach people what science is. And I think this has led to part of the problem. We teach science as fact, Science is provisional knowledge, right? In, in a really important way. And th that does not weaken it. It actually means this is our best explanation given the evidence right now, and that gives us faith to act on that. It also means it can be disrupted, right? When we start saying this is fact, we as scientists are lying to you. We are ending the conversation so that it's not surprising when people say, hold on, so you can just declare we're done. Well, guess what? I have a different view then. 
And now we're literally treating things that are empirical as if they're just matters of opinion. I think both sides of this have been complicit in that. I think the most interesting thing about science, again, is, now this is, this is really going deep on wonky, so I apologize, but not too sorry for it. When you're really bored, read Karl Popper, the only philosopher that I truly, truly love, because he, he comes up with what makes science science. And he starts with the idea that, imagine if you had a belief that all, you said, I think all sheep are white. It wouldn't matter if you've seen a thousand white sheep. It doesn't mean your theory is more true. It just hasn't, it, okay, one black sheep and your theory's done. <laughs> and that's knowledge. The scientific method does not claim to be absolute truth. There is God's truth. There is truth with a capital T. But mere mortals trying to understand how the world works do not have access to that. Or at least that's my belief. So if we have to start by saying we don't know, what would be the best way to try to find out some kind of useful knowledge about the world? And Popper taught us that you can get to truth through the elimination of error. Every time we say, well, it turns out all sheep aren't white, that's not a problem, that's knowledge. And we move on. So take something like evolution. Again, it drives me nuts. It's not a fact. It's the best explanation we have scientifically right now. And any scientist worth their salt is not trying to prove it, they're actively trying to falsify it. If we taught kids that, not only could they participate in, in, in the growing body of knowledge, I think they wouldn't be, we wouldn't be in this place where it's the dogmatic, well, my opinion's every bit as good as yours. No, it's not, right? Like, sometimes there are better opinions than others, so. <laughs> Well, and Brant, to um, piggyback on your question and to do another shameless plug for the Village Square book clubs, um, one of the clubs now is reading uh, The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Rauch, and that takes on exactly the question that you had. So um, I think we as a, a body of Village Square members can be grappling with these um, in even more profound ways. So, um, okay, any, I think we had someone over here. Bill, there we go. Uh, yeah, um, I might be going way off topic here because I know we're kind of talking about group think, group mentality. Yes. Um, so I work in psychology and um, I'm wondering when you are, you are um, doing these research um, experiments, what are the variables? So you, you talk about why, you know, why are people changing their thinking in order to fit in? So, do you ask further questions? Like, for me, I work with people and there's such a need in this country for external validation. Is that, I'm thinking that plays a lot into it. And so, it has to start when people are very young. So, it, it, it sounds to me like we have to train parents <laughs> yeah. to yes. validate their kids. Yeah, so, so you brought up something really important. So, one of the things we look at are what are the drivers of make, that make people most susceptible to groupthink and then to collective illusions, because that's just a groupthink to a wrong <laughs> belief. Um, and you raised, again, something really important here. One of the most powerful predictors of susceptibility is need for validation. 
Because that's not just fear of the group, that's I can't even feel good about myself unless you praise me, right? And so seeking the need to be like, oh look, my group likes me, everybody thinks I'm smart. You are gonna obsess about saying the right things, but it turns out because you, you, it's not just a fear of rejection, it's the, the social affirmation that you're after. You're exquisitely sensitive, which makes you more susceptible to the loudest voices repeated the most. So it turns out that's the most powerful psychological variable. The two professions that are the most susceptible to collective illusions in the country, politicians, because look, even a good politician is like, I'm trying to represent my group. Most of them just want lots of, <laughs> never mind. Um, I would not put my husband in that category. Perfect, okay. <laughs> Everybody else besides. Um, if you're trying to represent your constituency, you're really paying attention. And if you're not aware that your brain is computing loudest voices, like, I get a lot of calls on this. No, you got 10 calls, right? It just feels like everybody, right? The second group are CEOs. I care about my customer. I care about my employees. We have really good private opinion data on, let me tell you this. CEOs taking stances on every social issue, nobody wants that. Nobody. And the CEOs are like, yes, they do. My employees want it. My customers want it. I'm like, they don't. So we've had to go around the country to CEO after CEO saying, you're just wrong. Just do your thing. <laughs> right? like, um, so this, this question back to your point, trying to understand some of these underlying variables that are driving the phenomenon are going to be critically important if we're going to be more strategic at, and, and the, the need for like, social affirmation is right at the top of the list. Okay, so I want to um, hopefully bring us up a little bit um, and talk about social trust. So you have recommended in Collective Illusions that kind of social trust is going to be critical to helping us overcome these problems. We need to increase our social trust. We've had falling social trust. So what is going on and how can we turn that tide? Yeah, no, listen, social trust is just trusting strangers, right? It's trusting people I don't know to be able to make decisions for themselves. If I don't trust that you can make a decision without hurting me, then I have to control you. Social trust predicts almost everything that matters in free societies. It just does. Since the 1930s, every generation in America has had lower levels of social trust than the preceding generations. I put some of that blame squarely on the paternalism that's crept into our society. Uh, if our institutions don't trust us, why should we trust each other? That's actually an interpretation we take away from this. Um, but, but here's the thing. When you think about the drivers of social trust, the single biggest predictor of social trust is perceived shared values. I may know nothing else about you, but the fact you're in this room tells me something about who you are. It just so happens that this is a value I hold dear. I may be wrong, you may be rob me blind when we step outside, <laughs> but I am more likely to take that risk because I believe we share this value in common. That's the problem I see 
the, the flywheel of social trust where I'm like, you know what? People are basically decent. I don't know everything about you. You seem really different than me, but I don't think you're gonna hurt me with your choices. That's okay. The social trust that enables that allows us to come into contact with people. We don't need everyone to be the same. We can, we can bond through empathy, which is just the connection on the human experience rather than things that we don't look the same. But it's like we have to start somewhere, the flywheel. And so for me, when I, when I look at our data and I see collective illusion after collective illusion about some of the most fundamental values that a society can hold, I think we're in really big trouble if we don't get this right. Flip side is, there may be no better starting point to start that flywheel of social trust than to do the hard work of shattering these illusions and revealing to each other our common ground. Um, and so what's so important about that is, again, just like Havel, collective illusions don't shatter through persuasion. They don't shatter through telephones ringing. <laughs> no, that's okay. I like in my class, I used to, I'd say, you can have um, your phone ring, but you have to answer it in front of everyone. It only, took, it only takes one, and then no one ever. Um, the way you shatter illusions, it's unbelievably critical. It's not persuasion. It's not public service announcements. It is social proof. And let me tell you why this matters, and I'll give you the difference. The best example of... Under an illusion, if you try to persuade or you try to public service announcement, you will make this worse. Our, our friends that have, have gone on to protect free speech through fire that are trying to, like the ACLU has, I think, sadly, maybe lessened its commitment to that, started out at first thinking, I don't think the left cares about free speech anymore. Public opinion suggests they were smart enough to use, we didn't make up these methods, that's why I can say they're smart enough, um, they said, well, are we sure? Or do we just think this is true? Is this an illusion? They deployed private opinion methods. We didn't do that research. What they found was the left had every bit as much of a commitment to, to free speech, but they didn't think the left. The left doesn't think the left has the same commitment. And so that changed their entire strategy about who they were going after, how they were going to think about this. If you don't recognize that, the best example of doing, making this worse, do you remember the Say No to Drugs campaign? Yeah. This is your brain on drugs, any questions? I'm like, why is my brain like an egg in a frying pan? Um, that, that comes about because we see this small uptick in first-time drug use for teens. Government wants to do something about it. They uh, spend about a billion dollars taxpayer money, they get the best ad companies in the country. It's a resounding advertising success. Typical American teen saw three ads a day for six years. Trying to scare them straight, right? Problem was, they assumed that the reason kids were trying drugs is they were curious about drugs. But even back then, there was private opinion data that said that wasn't true. Kids were skeptical about drugs. What they wanted was to fit in. And as crazy as this sounds, the kids back then were under this illusion, no kidding, most teenagers in America thought most teenagers were already doing drugs. 
which was like one big rave, like, <laughs> like junior high everywhere across the country. But like, so, okay, into that illusion, you blitz them with a billion dollars of ads trying to scare them straight. What they took from those ads was, this must be what we're doing. Because why would adults try so hard to get us to stop? No kidding. Research has conclusively shown that that campaign directly led to an increase in first-time drug use attributed to the campaign itself. I kind of imagine there's like some family who was barely getting by and we took their tax money and used it to hook their kid on drugs. Like that's, this is what I mean when you get, you got to understand the nature of the problem. The flip side is, if you realize under illusions it's social proof, there's a number of things. We do some of this, we use pop culture. We embed things in background, in music, in television shows um, to help reveal. The single most powerful form of social proof is contact is being in contact with people like me. So you know these kind of things matter, but now you know they really matter. When it comes to collective illusions, it is being in the community, it is just talking to each other, as simple as it sounds. There's no more powerful way to shatter illusions than that. All right. Oh, I see Bill. Oh, Liz. All right, one last question. Thank you. Um, so we uh, have some just really dear Brazilian friends and their son lived with us while attending his uh, junior year in high school and we'd watch movies in the evening and after one uh, particularly horrible film, um, I, I, I said, oh, that was, he says, what are you talking about? It, it got tremendous reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, it won awards. I mean, and, and I said, well, so is this is how you select the movies that you use? Of course, I look and I see the ratings and this and that. And so in light of that, I tried to talk to him about independent critical thought and making up your own mind. And, and at the time, I didn't have the term collective illusion to, you know, drop on him. But what I was wondering is, is in this world where people are bombarded with uh, social media and are told what's good before they see it. I mean, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Would you really hang the Mona Lisa in your home? Because you'd be ostracized if, 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 you were, if you dared to confront the popular wisdom. What can we do to preserve independent critical thought given our you know, neurological predisposition toward uh, conformity yeah. and, and falling in line with the popular opinion? So, as simple as this sounds, Okay, we cannot escape the conformity bias we have. There, there are good reasons why we prefer to belong, why we want to bond, why we've understood these things. It matters. There's also, again, back to culture and why the norms matter, what it means to be part of the group. That, unless I know that, then I don't know how I can signal this, right? So when, when groups create norms that actually expect, like, like, if you're just gonna repeat what everybody else said, you're not really part, we can do that, right? I have to tell you, this is a little bone to pick with my co-founder here. No, I'm not. I, who, this is who I said was the most congruent person I know, sometimes that's great. When you have to fly around the country on JetBlue watching movies, um, I am a little more like, yeah, but what were the reviews? And I like to pretend that it's because I don't want to waste my time, and I think it's just I'm being lazy. 
and she'll say, don't tell me what the reviews are. I think we end up with some interesting things and also some truly terrible movies um, <laughs> that then I have to hear about as we drive to our next meeting. Um, so I have mixed opinions about whether we should just follow the crowd on this. Um, but in all sincerity, like, like, there's part of it where we educate our kids to be critical thinkers, independent thinkers. We can't outsource that. Our, our homes need to do that. Our, our schools need to do that. Um, <laughs> I will say this too, in our private opinion data, first of all, there is no institution in this country that is so misaligned to what the public really wants than education right now. People, people do not want better, they want different. They want a different purpose for education. One of the things I was shocked about was that in the trade-off priorities people have, the only attribute that was in a top priority for every single demographic was that kids learn to think for themselves. That's the last thing we're doing in education right now, right? Um, so we've got to get there that way. This is what the public really wants. Um, but we can also work on we can also work on the norms that emerge. Again, what what it means to be part of our communities, what it means to be American. And we can get there. But look, it's going to be hard. But we we really have no other choice, right? Like, this is it. This is all we got. All right. Well, with that uh, call to action, I think we're going to call it a night. And by, hey, anybody that wants to ask Parisa about the last movie she watched, you were warned. Oh, now we all do want to know that. Oh, look at this. That's all. This is all I'm asking for. This is it. Tell her. I love it. I love the people that are still sitting. <laughs> They're being congruent. <laughs> All right. What a program. Corey Nathan back here with you. You know, I really appreciate so much of what Dr. Rose talked about here. His work strikes at the heart of so much of what's deeply troubling many of us who are engaged in these types of conversations whether it's about our politics or our beliefs or about what's going on around the world. I've been thinking that there are some folks who seem to lose their grasp on what their own beliefs are because they're so wrapped up and, and are mostly just reacting to what they think their opponents are saying and doing. And then we never end up talking to people across those differences because we're so busy fighting with them. But then when it comes down to it, we're not nearly as divided as we think we're divided. As Todd was saying, and as his work fleshes out, we lose sight of what our beliefs and, and thoughts are, whether it's on the most mundane opinions, like how good looking someone is, to life and death decisions, such as when an organ transplant is needed. We fall into collective illusions, as his latest, the, the latest book encapsulates it, collective illusions, based on what 10% of the loudest people are screaming out in the village square. And because they're so loud, our brain starts to think that 10% represents 80% and that's the illusion. It's not the screamers village square, it's our village square. Or as Todd Rose puts it in today's program, if a mere poet like Václav Havel can overthrow communism, I think we'll be okay. And with that, it's time to close out today. 
please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. While you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Florida Humanities or National Endowment for the Humanities. We appreciate you listening to Todd Rose Collective Illusions. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't think or look like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast.